Welcome back to the Four Gardens podcast. I'm Jake Ifshin. The Four Gardens are an approach I'm developing to cultivate a life of balance, joy, and abundance by focusing on four key areas. On this show, I talk to people inspiring me in those four areas of health, nature, creativity, and service. To learn more, go to fourgardenspodcast.com and make sure to like and subscribe to hear new episodes and support this project. My friend Mike Kaplan is here with me today. In addition to being a funny, wise, and kind person who I thoroughly enjoy talking to, Mike is a comedian who's appeared on The Tonight Show, Conan, Letterman, James Corden, so many other places you can find him. And he has a one-hour special on Amazon, Small Dork and Handsome, and a couple of podcasts, one that I was lucky to go on this week called Broccoli and Ice Cream. So check that episode out. I will share it below. Um, His first album, Vegan Mind Meld, was one of uh, iTunes' top 10 comedy albums of the year, and his newest album, a.k.a., debuted at number one. I'm super, super happy to have him on today. We're going to talk about creativity, comedy, some of his own healing journey and podcast. So we're going to get, I don't know where this conversation is exactly going to take us, but I'm really excited for it. So let's jump on in. Hey, Mike. Hey, that music is great. Did you make it? I did not make that music. I sourced that music from the internet. But did you make it play so that I could hear it? I did hit a button. Yeah, it was... It was sweet. You know, when I do podcast, when I do my own podcast, I, I recorded my theme songs. Uh, but the people that I'm that w- when I had you on my podcast, uh, as you may remember, you didn't hear the theme song play when we recorded. I edited it in later. But uh, I really like uh, when it happens this way, when I when I'm, I'm like, wow, this is this is professional. This is like this is really happening. Like, I don't I don't have a button like that. <laughs> Well, here at the Four Gardens podcast, you know, the pr- production value is, is very high over here in my apartment. And Agreed. I, uh, yeah, I like, I like just doing it all in one go. That's my, that's my practice here with these is just try and do, I do the intro and I do the outro all live. And that's just, Man, for me, it's like all one flow. That's inspiring. Maybe I'll start doing that. Well, I'm actually looking forward to hearing, I'm, I, was, I was grateful to be on your podcast, Broccoli and Ice Cream, just maybe four days ago. And I love that format of broccoli through the, the work and ice cream, the joy is the way I understood it and experienced it. And I, yeah, let's, let's just jump in and talk about podcasting. So we're on this of, um, I've been enjoying listening to that show too. And yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about with your podcast project, how that got started for you and what keeps you going. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I'll answer the last part first. I don't know what keeps me going, but I think it's because I'm doing it. And sometimes when you start doing something, you're like, well, this is what I do now. But it is also nice to every once in a while, remember that I, I don't have to, like I could, it seems like there's people depending on me. Like there are people who like pay uh, money to my Patreon to get, uh, all, all that I'm putting out as opposed to just the, the one free episode that I put out each week. And so I'm like, but if I didn't put one out, then what would, what would th- those people would be sad? Or I would just, you know, not charge them money that month or ever again. But the way I started, I think it was 2012. Uh, I moved to New York in 2008. And that was the first time that I think I'd heard of a podcast. I went on 
uh, the podcast Keith and the Girl, uh, which is like one of the first podcasts that still exists. They've been doing it for like thousands of episodes. They do it every day. Uh, Keith and Chemda. Chemda was at one of my stand-up shows, one of the first shows I did in New York. And she was like, do you want to come on our podcast? And I was like, I'd love to. What is that? And I learned what podcasts were essentially. And then I learned, you know, then I think, you know, like uh, Earwolf popped up and, you know, and Nerdist and, you know, these big podcasting empires. And I was like, oh man, it would be really great to have a podcast on one of these big networks. Uh, like this, it's sort of the way that <laughs> I was in a place where if you're not a stand-up comedian, sometimes, uh, you might fi- like be like, oh, what, what have you done as a stand-up comedian? Like, have you, I feel like there's a lot of comedians who haven't been on, let's say, you know, like Saturday Night Live or, any like TV at all. And they have, might have like relatives that are like, have you thought about trying to get on the tonight show? And uh, yeah, that'd be great. It's like, oh, my, I'm Jay Leno. So you should come on, you know, uh, whatever the case might be. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jay. I forgot that was your show. Uh, back whenever this was happening, that would make that true. But I feel like my idea of wanting my podcast to be like, I didn't even have a podcast yet, but I was like, I want it to be like the tonight on the tonight show of podcasts. I was like, I reached out to some people uh, to find out if I could get to do, I was like, Hey, what would be involved in getting a podcast, uh, on one of these networks? And the folks I knew there were like, well, maybe just like start doing your own, start having a podcast first. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't, I want, I want somebody else to do the work. And then somebody offered me somebody who I did never heard of, uh, reached out at some point. I think maybe this had happened before he, somebody was like, Hey, do you want me to produce a podcast for you? And I was like, uh, I mean, I don't really, I don't really know you, so I, I guess I don't know. Uh, and then I was like, I'm going to explore and find hey, maybe somebody that I know, like, and who likes me and who I like will, uh, help make me, help me make a podcast. And then, uh, but that didn't happen. So then I went back to this guy and I was like, Hey man, yeah, what would be involved? And he had, he had all the equipment and I just went, went over to his place and started like inviting friends over. And the reason that I decided that I did want to do a podcast eventually was I went on, I think it was uh, my friend Andy Beckerman's podcast, and I think it was called Beginnings. And I think he was just, you know, he and maybe a co-host were asking comedians and other people, like, how they how they began whatever it is that they were talking about. And at the time, I think that might have been the first time that I met Andy, uh, and and or maybe we'd been on shows together, but I didn't feel like I knew him well. But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say yes to an opportunity, like, happy to do this. And so I went over to his place, uh, or wherever the podcast was recording. And I remember like, I went in not feeling like ideal. Like I was just like, ah, like I didn't, I didn't, my day wasn't the best. But then I came out and I was just like full of like, I was, you know, the, the adrenaline of just having had like a really, you know, nice, beautiful communion of a conversation, like with a person. I was like, oh, we're comedians. We're, we're in this together. Now we're friends. And I was like, I didn't even know these people. And now I'm feeling so good just having hung out with them. And so then that, I was like, I don't want to just be at the mercy of like people inviting me onto their podcasts to have that experience. I'm like, I, I will be the inviter. I am the man who pods, you know? Yes. And so I went back to this dude, Dave, uh, who do, I think no, is no longer in the podcast business, but at the time he was like, yeah, I want to have a podcast network. And so I, I called my first podcast, hang out with me. And, uh, I think there's still like hundreds of episodes that you could, that are on uh, online now. Um, from 2012 to 2018, like eventually when Dave got out of the podcast biz, uh, I was like, what am I going to do now? I don't, I don't know how to do anything. And I went to Keith and the girl, uh, who previously just had their own podcast, but they were starting turning their 
their world, their podcast world into a network. And, uh, and I was like, can I be on your network? And they were like, sure. And then they started being my producers. And so I would go to their, their podcast studio to, uh, to record. And I did that for several years. And then, uh, in 2018, I think, uh, we had an amicable parting of ways and, uh, I still love going on their show. I still love them. And it was, it turned out to be a great thing, a scary thing at first, because I'm like, well, I, I do want to keep having a podcast, but I, I concluded hang out with me. And that's when I, I conceived of broccoli and ice cream. I was like, well, what do I want to do? Cause at this point it, it used to be that like just podcast, like just having a podcast seemed like it was quote unquote enough, you know? Uh, but at this point it's, and there's, I feel like there's so many comedians that have podcasts and so many of them are wonderful. And sometimes there are people that are like, I'm not going to just have a podcast to have a podcast. And there's some people who are like, well, I'm not gonna have a podcast. Like every comedian has a podcast. I'm like, well, every comedian's also a comedian and you're doing that, you know, if that's what you're doing. And so I did, I did at that point sit down and think like, what do like, it's sort of, I remember in conversations sometimes about like freedom of speech and creativity in stand up and, and just in art and in the world in general, uh, the question, no questions arise of like, you know, who can say what, what, what shouldn't you say? Like, are there rules, you know? Uh, and Todd Glass is a comedian who I love, who I feel like he's not the only person to say this, but he's the person who I iconically think of that really stuck out to me when he's like, as a comedian, he's like, of course you can say whatever you want. And so what do you want to say? And so I'm like, I want a podcast, but like, what do I want to podcast? And so that is, I forget exactly in conversations with like my good friend, Zach Sherwin and uh, Rini, my girlfriend, who has been my girlfriend for the past five and a half years. So in, in 2018, we were like, oh, like I get to start something from scratch. Uh, what is it that I want to start? And I was like, I don't want to just have, you know, Com I, I, do, I, I think hang out with me, like just comedians hanging out was a fun way to start that first podcast. And now I'm like, oh, the next level will be like, have it be about something. And so that is when I, I conceived it, as you said in the intro, uh, you know, I talk to people about the, the work of their lives, whether it's, you know, their profession, their job, their career, or, you know, their, the work that they're doing on themselves in therapy or in self-help arenas or uh, whatever, whatever work means to them. Uh, I, I talk about that, and then I talk about uh, the joys that they experience, like, that are, in some ways, sometimes, like, separate from work. It might be, like, a false dichotomy, because also, for a lot of the people that I talk about, uh, that I talk to, uh, comedians, uh, artists of different kinds, like, people who are passionate about what they do, it's very frequent that uh, the work that they do also brings them joy, peace, and calm, and makes them feel the ways that you'd want to when you're working or not working. A lot of broccoli flavored ice cream, exactly. and ice cream flavored broccoli, all exactly. that. Exactly. And and a, a commonality that arises frequently when I start the conversation where I'm like, when you're not working, you know, what are the things that make you feel the way that you want to feel? Uh, there's, you know, it's not all the time, but there's a, enough people that are like, I have no idea. I, I work and I love my work and uh, I really got to work on figuring out what to do when I'm not working because I work so much. And I'm a person that probably if I was, if me from like 2008 was on that, on my show, I would have a similar thing. Like at that point in my life, I remember I had a relationship where I felt like, have you heard this analogy? I forget who, who presented it and the exact uh, nature of it, but it's something like you got a container and you got like 
really big rocks and then like pebbles and then sand. And they're like, you got to put the big rocks in first. If you want to get them all in there, you put the big rocks in and those are like the things that are most important to you in, in your life. Like do those because if you're not getting those in, then you're not going to, you're not going to get a, a boulder in if it's all, if it's all full of sand. So you got to do like boulder, then smaller rocks, pebbles, and then sand will fill in mm. the cracks. But I felt like I was treating at that time, like my romantic relationship, like sand. I was like, look, I got the boulder of my career and, uh, and that just bowled her over, you know? And she was like, <laughs> goodbye. Uh, because I would like cancel dates for shows that came up. Like, cause I was really just not, I don't know if I would say too focused, but I was like, th- I was, it was out of balance. Like, and so uh, I know that, uh, I know that on your podcast, which we are on. We are balance yeah. focused here. <laughs> uh, but you don't want to focus on balance too much at the expense of non-balance. Well, um, I will, I will say this is an interesting place to, zoom out for a second because I do think this choice of work versus play is really interesting. And I am making a conscious choice with the four gardens, not to make work one of the four gardens Um, and see making sure that we can maybe 10, two, three, four of these gardens through the work we're doing that if your work is a, you're a comedian, you're obviously doing creative work. You're, you can be of service to others. There's ways, but I want to fit work and family and other things within a bigger structure has been sort of what I'm exploring around it. And I think it's a really useful way to open people up. That's what I found too, is to be able to first share, here's the big boulders of my life and then fill it in with pebbles and pleasure. And like, I can, I share, I like to play board games and card games, like thing to get to know people's uh, other little bits about them. That's really share who they are as like a three dimensional being and not just as a worker. I think I love that about the format you created. Not just a worker being, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but also uh, a pleasure bee. Um, yeah, totally, totally. And so, I mean, to, to ultimately, you know, button off the, the quote unquote end of the, the answer to the question that you asked, uh, like I, I mean, the reason that I do the Broccoli and Ice Cream podcast is that I love sitting down and having conversations with people, which was like, you know, even the thing that I loved before I was specifically formatting it this way. But I, I love learning about what people care about uh, and it is sort of like uh, a, you know, not necess- a spectrum, not necessarily a false dichotomy, but I'm like, what are the things that you, you know, that you actively choose to have in your life? What, like, what do you love doing, whether it's categorized as work or play? And so it's just, you know, I love having friends on, like old friends or new friends, you know, old friends. It's so nice to be like, to learn something about a friend that, uh, you know, sometimes it's just reminiscing and, uh, you know, expressing gratitude for all the times that we have had. And then uh, for newer people, of course, I'm like learning brand new things. Sometimes for old people, I'm learning brand new things. And I'm doing my best, like on my podcast, to like encourage the guests to talk as much as they want to because, like, I know, I know all, I know my things. Like, I mean, every once in a while, I, I say something that I've never said before. And I'm like, oh, I should, I should write that down or say that on stage or what have you. But like, I've been with Rini, my girlfriend, uh, focusing more on listening, uh, especially off stage. Uh, and like, we re- we both read this book called "You're Not Listening," which talks about. Uh, all the ways in which uh, most people, certainly I'll speak for myself, I'll speak for myself about how I've been speaking for myself uh, <laughs> quite a bit. And uh, even if we perceive of ourselves as good listeners, there's always ways that we can be listening more. And one of the major themes of the book is like, you learn more when you're not talking. You learn more when someone else is talking because they've had, they are a different person. They've had different experiences. And it's, it, even if you want to think about it selfishly, be like, well, you can, like if you're a comedian, 
And if you're an artist, if you're somebody who, you know, is taking things in from the world and alchemizing them into, you know, new forms, like filtering it through, you know, the conduit of your experience, like the more that comes in, then the more, the more different can come out, the more growth there can be, the more evolution, the more, the more data points you have, like the more complex a, a new picture you can draw. I love the things you mentioned. I, I share those same um, motivations, the podcast of the building my listening, connecting to others, doing this research of other humans in the world where I w every time I don't, I learn something new, I do one of these episodes. So I can resonate. You've done many more of them than me, how this is a learning tool for yourself and personal development. And I feel like we share a way of, of learning, which I think from talking to you in the past, that processing out loud, that talking being able to not just listen to somebody else's podcast with the person, but to have this opportunity to ask my own questions. And then maybe when something comes up that speaks that I need to do a little work on, I can talk to it on the podcast, but also putting myself in that secondary role of, yeah, I'm going to, I'm not going to be the one talking for most of the time here. It's about somebody else, but it's also about my relationship to that person too, is what I'm finding. I think your podcast is, I, I can feel the relationship you've had with your guests when I listen. Like it's not just, I want to know who is this person in relation to Mike because I'm listening to Mike's show. And so I'm kind of aware of like this being a relational meditation in a way too of people wanting to, as they become regular listeners, see the web of people you've created in your life and how you're learning. I, I track that as I listen to your show. So I think that's another just way I'm experiencing it. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. And I really like the phrase uh, relational meditation. I like I like when there's, you know, there's, those are both two words. This is like a theme. Like I, I studied linguistics uh, because I love language, because I love thinking about, you know, words and, and the things that they represent, you know, actually uh, what they're used for, like, which is a tool for communication, for communion, for connection with other people, like to share uh, ideas and thoughts. And uh, I have a, a particular, a friend of mine named Drea, who I had on my, on my podcast, Drea Clark, uh, and she, I, I actually haven't ever met her in real life. We just met over the pandemic. I went on her podcast. She has a, a, a movie podcast, I believe it's called Who Shot Ya? And uh, she has it with a few friends. And we, you know, you, uh, we talk about a movie that everybody's watched. And it's really, she's kind and thoughtful. And it's a really fun show. And just, we started an, you know, an email, like a pen pal, you know, electronic pen pal correspondence. And, and we, we've become friends over the past year and a half or so. And I, she's a, a person who I very specifically note, and but it, she's not the only person. In fact, it just happened here that like every once in a while she'll use a two-word phrase, and I'm like, two of the like each word is like a of you know not necessarily the most common word, but definitely a word I know, a word that I use. But putting those two words together like creates just this you know I guess maybe sort of this is a a, a macro or microcosm, a, a, an other some sort of cosm of of the exact uh, concept that we're talking about here which is that when two people come together when two different people uh come together then something new that neither of them had ever experienced before can arise like uh, in the concept that you just uh named in the i mean maybe you've said it before but the idea of a uh, this relational meditation i'm gonna say it those are gonna be the only words i say from now on <laughs> relational meditation yeah i think I, I think i borrowed that from circling communication Fair. training calls itself that too okay we become really sensitive of our communication with one another and how it affects our bodies and really tune into the impact of our communication. But I think that that, um, the way you put it really is a really clear description of what I'm experiencing too with podcasts, each episode being unique co-creation. I'm always surprised 
at what comes up. I'm never able to predict it. I try to do these intros live and I started doing your intro today and I'm like, I don't even, you know, I have some notes, but I don't know where this conversation is going to go. And I love that. Sure. And, um, I of course could go back and record. This is what was great about that conversation intro. And that maybe will be something I do in the future, but before it's kind of almost fun to, to guess in the intro, call your shot. That's what we might yeah. talk about here. Got to knock it out of the park. Turns out we weren't even playing baseball. <laughs> My last episode, I thought we were going to talk about poetry and storytelling. Ended up mostly being about conflict resolution. Hmm. So that was a good one with Lauren Hershey uh, that I recorded recently. And you're like, I want to talk about poetry. She's like, <laughs> we did well, get there let's later. Let's resolve this. Yeah. But often it'll be, instead of me pushing one direction that I want, something will come up where I'm like, wow, that actually feels way interesting. Let's go there. Let's sure. You know, I this is an experience I have sometimes when I go on other other podcasts of other friends. I'm sorry, this isn't the, isn't the only oh podcast that I've been on. <laughs> but like, I went on uh, my friend Ray DeVito is a comedian. It went on his podcast, I think last Thursday. And uh, I, in it usually, I would say I have some idea of like, whether there is a theme to the podcast. Like if the podcast has a name, you know, and you're like, oh, the Four Gardens podcast, I've talked to you before and on my show about what those are. So I have a sense of like, at least, you know, the the hubs that we might be circling around or at some point might come to or take off from. Uh, but like Ray's podcast is, we, he just, we started chatting and, and there was another comedian, Veronica Mosey, and we all just had a great conversation that uh, if you ask me, like, is there a theme to that podcast? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, it was, you know, it was fun and it was thoughtful and it was about comedy and our lives. And that's so it's nice. It's I like I like it. Like, there's no way that I don't like it. But it's like so I, I very specifically like when I go into a podcast where I know what the theme is or what the questions might be about, uh, then beautiful. Like I did a live podcast show last week. I performed and it was like comedians and telling ghost stories. So I'm like, I know definitely what I'm going to be talking about. Like the more specific it is, then the more I know at least where I'm going to start. Uh, and the, the less, the more general it is, like the more possibility there is. I think those are the two. I was talking to a buddy uh, Sagar, Sagar Bot. He has a wonderful podcast called The Anxiety Lab. And uh, he lives in my neighborhood and we go for walks sometimes. And I remember he was he was going through some... It's uh, a great name. Oh, yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, thank you on behalf of Sagar. I didn't... Uh, I can't take credit for... I either. like that Anxiety yeah. Lab. I'm going <laughs> to yeah, check these podcasts out. Oh, yeah. Sagar is uh, a super thoughtful, funny guy. Uh, the podcast is not necessarily comedy. It's more, more thoughtful related than comedy. But... Uh, I enjoy both. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you like thoughts and comedy? That's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the minority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, you're its target market, I bet. Um, <laughs> so we were having a conversation wherein uh, he was sharing like some, he, he's like, I don't know what's going to happen in the future with respect to these various uh, aspects of his life, not to get, you know, not to get too into his business, but let's say but vaguely, like some of the boulders of his life. He's like, like, am I going, to, where am I going to live? Like, wh how am I going to be spending my time? Like, who am I going to be spending it with? And, uh, and he expressed the idea of like wanting in some way, there's part of him that wants to like keep a lot of options open because sometimes, you know, when you close doors on certain options, that doesn't, it feels like a loss. It feels like, oh no, what if that was the door that would have led to, you know, ultimate happiness forever. Uh, so he's like, let's hold, which really, I also related to, like, I remember in college, like, 
I was studying, I was majoring in philosophy and psychology. I thought about getting a math major. I eventually got a math minor. I got a linguistics minor. I thought about getting an education degree or applying to teach for America, maybe becoming a psychologist or a social worker or a music teacher or a musician or, you know, following my, you know, non-just conventional uh, set path dreams. And so you're mostly about making money. <laughs> that's exactly. Uh, that's my main thing. Money, 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 money. <laughs> Finally, we're to it. You know, the four gardens, just plant some money seeds and grow that money. Oh, yeah. Um, and I remember I was in an acapella group, which I loved doing, but I one of the things that I did is I left the acapella group because I really did want to pursue my own solo music career, and I just needed time to go out into the world, and I didn't have that time because we were just rehearsing so much. And I remember at the time, I, I imagined it as I was like being pulled in like five different directions, and because they were all in different directions, I was going nowhere. I was just staying, and I was like, oh, I know I could go, but if I go in that way, then I'm getting farther from that way. But if I go that way, then I'm getting farther from that way. But if I don't go anywhere, then I'm not going anywhere. So I was like, well, let, let me let go of at least one of these for now so that I can, you know, catapult myself into one of these directions. And I'm very glad that I didn't. So that I was reminded of that when I was talking with Sagar and he's like, I want to keep, you know, I I like the idea of keeping all these options open. And it reminded me of that, like as a baby, you know, we have the capacity, every baby has the capacity to learn any language, whatever language is spoken around the baby. A baby is capable of making any sound that a human can make. And eventually, you know, the, whatever languages you do learn, that'll like highlight those pathways in your head and it'll eventually close the door on the other pathways. Uh, And that's good because while you're a baby, you can't do any, you can't speak anything. You can't, it's like, and so I I think the way that I put it that Sagar liked uh, was something like, I was like, when you have all of the possibilities, you have none of the actualities. So you, it, it seems like it's important if you want to actualize something, if you want to create something, if you want to discover something, if you want to get somewhere, there by definition, have to be some places that you do not go, that you close the door on. You like to say, here's another analogy. I was in Edinburgh performing at the Fringe Festival in 2018. Loved it. Uh, hope to go back the next time possible. And uh, a buddy of mine, Adam Palmiter, I believe is the way he says his last name. I mostly only see it written. Like we, uh, he was a comedian in New York uh, before before uh, the pandemic and before. We went to Edinburgh and I'd like been on shows with him and he was like a guy who I saw around, but we'd we'd never really had a relationship beyond, you know, a friendly hello. But he was also passing through Edinburgh and he is, in addition to a comedian, his, his big boulders are painting. Like he's like, I'm a painter and I also do comedy. And so one day uh, we agreed to like go climb this mountain king's seat or something. I figured there's like a, a very, a pretty easily climbable, like you could climb it in a half hour. Like I'm not a mountain climber and you just, you walk up and you're at the top of this mountain and it's like, it's beautiful. And we agreed to go at like 2 PM on a Friday. Uh, and he told me as we were walking, we had this beautiful conversation that, uh, he had been offered uh, a gig, you know, a set, you know, there's shows happening all day, every day at this festival. And he was like, I could have, you know, turned down. uh, I could have been like, Mike, I can't make the walk that we planned because I have to do this set. And it's possible that if, uh, if I were in that situation, maybe I was like, oh, wow. I mean, depending on what the set was, what the show was, because I didn't know what was going to happen on our hike. But uh, he was like, I'm a painter. So like, if I was offered like a painting gig, I probably would have taken it. But I was offered a comedy gig. I'm more a painter than a comedian. I wanted to have uh, the experience that, you know, we had, we had planned and agreed on. And so 
I, I thought of it like this, and I, I think about FOMO sometimes, you know, the concept of fear of missing out, and a joke I tell, or a, a true thing that I say, whatever it is, is if you have FOMO, if you have a fear of missing out, one thing that you are definitely missing out on is not having fear. And, and so the, thing, the, the new thing that arose from this hike up the mountain was, I was like, yeah, you said no to the show. You said, uh, but that was because you, had to, you wanted to say yes to the mountain. Like literally, we're talking about boulders. I'm like, you said yes to like the, this, ma- this <laughs> massive boulder to climb. And, you know, we both said, now we got this beautiful like new concept of like, oh yeah, like whatever you're saying, it's important to sometimes say no to things. Uh, and because in the service of saying yes to the, the larger, more meaningful, important things, like in that experience, it was, you know, this, the, the, this really, you know, fostering of, uh, our, our first, like, you know, beautiful, uh, friendship communion. It's beautiful. And um, you're reminding me of Liz Glazer, our mutual friend who came on the show as episode two here, who said no to the career in law. You know, that's a big part of her story is oh, saying yeah. no to law and saying yes to comedy and making that jump. So hearing you had all these different possibilities uh, and options open for you, which I can relate to, I'm sure many of our listeners have um, options and different passions that are pulling them in different directions, certainly me, and making that choice for comedy. When you chose comedy, what went into that for you? What was that experience? Thanks for asking. Yeah, Liz uh, Liz is the best. We just were on a show together last night. It was uh, really wonderful. Love Liz. Yeah, oh yeah. Liz is the, everyone, check out Liz Glazer. Uh, I'll do my plugs right now. Liz, I will link Liz. Liz Glazer, yeah. Too. Uh, dear Liz Glazer. Okay. Um, so back, back to where I was, I, I guess I'll go back even further. Uh, when I was four, uh, I started playing the violin because I was made to. Uh, it was, I was given it in the guise of a choice, I'm told. Like, I don't remember this. Uh, but my parents were both music teachers and music was like, uh, was very important to at least my mother and, and both my parents, they both went to school for music. They met at, uh, NYU when they were studying to be musicians and music teachers. And, uh, my mom really wanted me especially to love, uh, music. And, you know, as a kid, I like, I hated it. I like, I threw tantrums. I like lay down on the floor. I screamed. I didn't love playing the violin as a child. And, uh, and I, I went, but it was, it was basically like, I, you know, I, I feel like my understanding is that some children are made to go to like Sunday school or Hebrew school or, you know, the mosque or whatever the equivalent is in any faith tradition. They're like, this is who we are. This is what we do this one day a week or however often. And for, for my family, like I, I grew up, you know, culturally, secularly Jewish. And I did also go to synagogue once a week for several years. Uh, to study, you know, uh, Jewish history and Hebrew and such. And I had a bar mitzvah, but in my family, music was who we are and what we do. And so I, I was, I spent much more time, like every Saturday from age, you know, some single digit age through high school, every Saturday we would go from New Jersey into the city and uh, there would be just an all day program where I had theory classes and, uh, and vi- private, I had a private violin lesson on a separate day. And then I would, uh, had a quartet rehearsal on a separate day. Like eventually like Hebrew school was sort of like that too. Like I originally went just on Sunday mornings and then it was learning Hebrew on Monday afternoon. And then they also had bar mitzvah practiced for that year, like on Wednesdays, you know, like three, so like three days a week. And so music, it used to be like, it, it ended up being, you know, quartet Wednesday night, private lesson Monday night, all day Saturday learning, like having master classes and ensembles and playing in an orchestra and just like, you know, we had breaks through the day, but it was like, you know, kind of there for eight hours or whatever. And, uh, it was, I did it because I was made to, I remember one time, uh, 
like everyone else in the group that I was in was like dressed up and I wasn't because they were taking a photo uh, as like promo for some trip they were going on like that I wasn't going on. They were going like to Europe or something and I wasn't a part of that. But I was, so I was the only kid that was supposed to go out and perform like with everyone else dressed fancy. And I was like, I don't wanna. And my mom was like, well, you have to, it's, you're part of the group. And I was like, but everyone else. And, and I remember her being like, well, I mean, I, I was I was a pretty good kid. Like I wasn't there wasn't really a lot of like punishment in my house, you know. Uh I, I just generally like followed the rules and did my homework and did what I was supposed to, but I felt, you know, un, I felt self-conscious at this point and I expressed it. And my mom was like, Well, uh then you can't watch TV for a week if you don't go out there. And I was like, Well, I love TV, so I'm gonna do it. And uh and so that that was like that's that's how much of a pushover. I was like, Yeah, no, I you, don't take away my TV. So I, I did I, I followed I followed the rules and like I there were things that I liked about it like me, I loved learning music theory because it was like I was a very mathy kid and it was like fun like you know fun to learn these things it was like puzzles and like when you had to you know I don't know if you do you have you studied music theory I have so you know like if you're doing like you know counterpoint or you know creating like harmonies like Bach did you know and they're like there are these certain rules that you learn and then you're given like you know either a melody or a bass line and they're like put in the rest of the chords and like it was super fun uh I still didn't uh I still didn't love having to do it that was so there's two analogies here about this uh, one is a, a joke that I haven't really told yet, but I was just uh, transcribing it the other day from my notebook into my computer. And uh, you know how, in, so uh, it, when I was 15, I started uh, teaching myself guitar and I loved it. Uh, and that's ultimately what led me to comedy. We'll get there shortly. Uh, but I, so I started, I started playing guitar all the time, like practicing it for hours, way more than I ever practiced the violin like I was supposed to. Like I was supposed to play, you know, half hour, an hour a day for violin. I, I sometimes did, I sometimes didn't and said I did. Uh, like I was pretty good at the violin and I was like, man, imagine if I had played as much as my mom wanted me to, or my teacher wanted me to, or, I, uh, but, uh, so it's fun. I like, but the guitar, I was like, Oh, I didn't even think of it as practicing. I just like loved playing it. And then it became like an additional puzzle. Your ice cream. Yeah, exactly. Figuring it out. Like looking at my mom had all these music books. She was a, a piano teacher as well and had just all, and she loved playing. She loved, so she had these Broadway books and all these just like pop music books from all the different decades. Uh, and all of them, all the way back, you know, like the 1420s and like the 12, you know, like a Gregorian chant, learn some Gregorian chant on the guitar <laughs> and uh, very, Good very stuff. pretty simple. Yeah. Um, but uh, I started just, you know, f figuring it out and I just loved it so much. I just, I was, it was pure play. And so I, the, the new fun joke idea that I have is like, you know, in the Karate Kid, uh, where da Daniel's son is learning, he's like, teach me karate. And the guy's like, paint the fence, wax the floor. And Daniel's like, what? And then like, you know, months later, whatever it is. Uh, he's like, teach me karate. And then Mr. Miyagi goes to punch him and is like, you know, paint the fence or block, uh, you know, and it becomes like a block uh, or wax the floor and it becomes a block or, you know, and it's like, what, you were teaching me this whole time. And so I feel like my mom was like Mr. Miyagi in that I was like, I don't want to learn how to play the violin. I want to learn how to play the guitar, you know, and like all that work, all the things that I thought I didn't enjoy uh, now, now like gave rise to learning how to play the guitar so easily. Like the guitar is, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but if you know how to play the violin, the guitar is pretty, was pretty simple for me to figure out. Uh, Cause there's frets, like you don't have to put your finger in the exact right place. Um, 
And and so I just I just loved playing the guitar. And there's this other, so here's the, <laughs> there's two other things. Uh, I know I said there were two. Everyone's going to split. Um, there, there's, you know, the folk, the Israeli folk writer, Isaac Basheva Singer? I do, yeah. Uh, so I grew up, like, uh, listening to and reading some of his stories. Uh, particularly, there was this one about a, the town, there was a bunch about this town called Chelm, you know? It was, like, a town in Poland where uh, they the people were dumb. <laughs> like, I, I like that, you know, classic, you know, the, the, I grew up, you know, with the idea that, like, I learned but until I was like, oh, that's uh, kind of a, kind of dumb itself that we're, like, Polish people, the idea that Polish people are dumb in Polish jokes, but I was like, I like that it was just a, one town in Poland where people were dumb. They weren't like, it's not all of Poland, it's just this one place, this fictional town, Helm. And so there was a story about a kid from Helm who uh, went out into the world and he was at a restaurant and uh, he was like, I'm really hungry. And they brought him the food that he asked for. And he's like, I'm still hungry. And they brought him more food and he kept ordering and he kept ordering and he kept ordering and he kept ordering. And uh, eventually he'd like maybe had almost everything on the menu and they finally, they bring, he's like, I'm still hungry. What is going to, what's going on? I need, I need to be full. And he finally eats a cookie uh, after everything else, after so much food. And he's like, oh, finally I'm full. Man, if I'd only known that it was the cookie that would make me full, I would have ordered that first. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, obviously the point of the story is that's ridiculous. Uh, This guy... Look how dumb this guy is. Uh, that's the story. This guy's dumb. But I was that guy because when I started teaching myself guitar and I was like, I love guitar. Oh, my God. It's so amazing. Man, if only I had started playing the guitar when I was four. Imagine how much better I'd be at it. But I didn't realize when I was a teenager, like, I would have hated it, you know, like the the necessary work, you know, to build up the calluses on the fingers and the calluses on the mind, you know. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm grateful in, I'm retroactively grateful. I remember sharing this with my mom. The final piece of this is from the book, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Uh, the greater that sorrow car, no, the deeper, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain is a line from that book. The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain, which doesn't mean that like, don't go out seeking sorrow, like just because you can alchemize it into joy and fill it with joy, but that, and it doesn't mean that every sorrow is necessarily, you know, uh, you, you automatically get this joy, but so much joy can arise out of, you know, even like the deepest of sorrows. And I remember sharing this with my mom and I was like, I mean, the joy of playing the guitar has arisen out of the sorrow of, and she's like, sorrow, hey. And I was like, oh no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm happy. I love it. I'm so, I'm so grateful. Um, and so when I was a teenager, 15, 16, 17, I was at this summer camp, which was like uh, one of the, a magical instrumental place in my growth uh, called Bucks Rock in Connecticut. And uh, it's like the first place that I felt welcome as like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I had some some nice friends, but they were sort of like automatically your friends. Ooh, here's another fun analogy that I never thought of until now. Um, I was thinking about this, that you, this might be a generalization, but in if you're in the, in the arts or whatever, uh, or maybe in anything, but I know for sure, like as a comedian, you know that you're, you must be successful when people start telling you that you're bad. <laughs> Like, 
And, but, but here's the thing is like, when you start out, you're bad, but people aren't just telling you you're bad. People aren't messaging you and like, you know, say like, I got it. I got it. Somebody tweeted at me the other day. It's so funny to me now. They, somebody tweeted and I just muted it. I didn't respond, but I love it. I'm like, I'm now telling everybody. I don't remember the person's name, but they were like, I love every comedian in the world except for Mike Kaplan. I was like, <laughs> what a, what a gift. What a, how did I, how did I impact this person? It's so fun. Like, you know, and there's. I'm like, have you met? You haven't met every comedian in the world. There's so many comedians that I think you would not like as much. As, but, but the idea, like, have you? What about me when I started? I would be right on board. Like, absolutely, you shouldn't have liked me when I started. Most comedians, when they start, you know, we're not as good as we're going to be, uh, and <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, but nobody, nobody's like just berating you for it. You know, maybe you're berating yourself, but. Eventually, you hopefully get good, and then, uh, and then you get good enough that if you get good enough that your work goes far and wide. That like at, at first, it's just like you have your fans. Hopefully, you know, and if you get fans, and that it's very grateful that there are people who care about what you do and buy your albums and follow you on social media and like tell their friends. And eventually, like you might have a, a tweet that goes so viral that people are like who is this person? Like, I don't like this, you know, cause comedy is subjective and it's not for everybody. And especially if people are like, I love this person. You're like, well, that's a weird thing. Why do you love, why do you love them? I don't love them. We like different flavors of things, but people don't think about that. So the analogy is, so once people start telling you that you're bad after you've become good, that, that is like a mark of success. That's and, a moment. And similar to that, my summer camp was the first time that people around me were like nice to me out like outside of the situation where it felt like that was just what was and I understand I'm I'm very lucky that I had a family where that seemed like it was just the default that's what it was supposed to be my family uh, cared for me and made me feel you know like sheltered and safe and warm and fed and loved and you know nobody nobody none of us is perfect but like I was I'm very grateful for the upbringing that I have and I had like you know a small group of friends that I went to school with for those initial years but then I moved and then I felt like I was alone at at this new school at you know age 13 through through most of high school I just didn't really fit in didn't have a lot of friends but my summer camp was where I did and like where I was like oh people are like kind and compassionate and welcoming and it was like this camp where it seemed like all the artsy weirdos all the outcasts and misfits were like coming together and my friend Ari, uh, who's actually the first person whose guitar I played, uh, he was also the person who like welcomed me into this group of friends. So I'm like my my personal life and my professional life. I think wouldn't if Ari weren't there, like I have no idea where I would be. I I imagine I thank wouldn't you, be Ari. here right now. Oh yeah, thank you, Ari. Uh, here we are, and uh, sometimes I call him Guitari, and not to his face. I mean, I, I think I would, but uh, he yeah, he was just so. Uh, he welcomed me into this group of friends and I, and so I was there and that's where I like started playing the guitar or because of that place, I started playing the guitar and sharing it with people there at like, you know, talent nights and then coffee house nights. And then when I went to college playing the guitar and the guitar became my dream, my, my creative, like, you know how when I was in high school, they're like, you know, when you apply to colleges, if you, if you apply to colleges, like you want to apply to ones that you're pretty sure you can get into. And then some that are, sa you know, safeties be like, yeah, definitely. If nothing gets me in, like, I'll go to this place. But then you want to have some reaches, some dreams, some, you know, places that you're like, maybe I'm not, I'm not going to in here. And I felt like playing the guitar for a living, like being a singer songwriter for a living, that uh, was my reach dream. That was like, I was like, I don't know if I'll get to do it. I know that everyone doesn't get to do it, but 
I know for sure I won't get to do it if I don't try. And so I wanted to, and I tried, and I, like, I went to college, and I played around campus. And when I was 20, when I turned 21, my senior year, I, like, started, like, calling calling all bars, you know, and, like, finding performance venues in the area, and it was, like, pre-Google, so I was just, like, you know, looking up some things. On, I searched, like, club on Yahoo or something, like, Boston Club, and found dance clubs and music venues and one comedy club, the Comedy Studio, and I called the Comedy Studio, and Rick Jenkins, the owner then, who is still the owner now, he answered the phone because he was pretty much the only employee at that point of the place, he uh, being the owner. And I was like, can I come perform some of my songs at your comedy club? Some of my songs are funny. And he said, sure, you can have five or seven minutes. And that was like a short amount of time compared to like music open mics might give you like three songs sometimes, like 15 minutes. And, but I was like, I, I'll see what I can do. And I like, I, I went there. Uh, it was probably... Uh, I, I say that I started doing comedy in 2002 because that's when I actively determined that I was doing comedy. But I did perform for the first time at a comedy club in, I think, late 1999, uh, which is w right after I turned 21. And I, I went on stage uh, after Jonathan Katz of, you know, Dr. Katz, professional oh, yeah. therapist. And, like, he ended his piece with, like, a musical number. And I went on and I'm like, this is my first time. And I'm going on after wow. the most famous person doing basically the same thing that I'm about to do better, <laughs> you know. And people laughed at that because it was like endearing my actual, you know, anxiety about it. And I played my my two silly short songs and I talked a little in between. And then, you know, I would go back and play songs there whenever Rick would let me, which probably like a couple times a year because I wasn't an aspiring comedian at that point. I was like a tourist, a hobbyist, you know, and he didn't want to he wasn't going to fill his his uh, his lineups with people who like weren't seriously pursuing comedy. Uh, or even, you know, that it was like, you're not a comedian, you know, <laughs> he wasn't telling me that, but like, I mean, I'm, I wasn't a comedian. I wasn't an aspiring comedian, but I loved little by little, like each time I went there, uh, I would, I would tell a few jokes or like riff a little bit. I didn't call it riffing in the, in the middle. I called it in between, I would call it talking until they stopped laughing and then playing the second song. And there was a place called Club Passim in uh, Harvard Square in Cambridge, uh, nearby that I would go every Tuesday night they had an open mic and I started doing uh, I would bring my guitar but we had a five minute you had a five minute set there and I would I would talk I would I've eventually started writing jokes and I would tell them there for like a couple minutes and then I'd play a three minute song and I did that week after week and I like eventually recorded my first album there which is not available uh, generally speaking but I have uh, I still have you know the the files it's called open mic night and it was recorded at their open mic over the course of like 12 weeks. And it's like 12 tracks of like jokes that I had only not even really begun doing comedy yet and telling. And then 12 songs that I performed also at that open mic over that time. And so that was sort of like the transitional period where my dream, like I was trying to head towards being a singer songwriter and then organically discovered that I was becoming a joker joke writer, which is a thing that people don't call themselves, but it seems <laughs> like why not? Um, and perhaps it's because uh, these days, at least it is assumed that if you are telling jokes that you are the writer of the jokes, but if you're singing a song, you're not necessarily the writer of the song as much as you are when you're the teller of the jokes, but I think it's still fun. So the, the, Sometimes I say this as a joke when asked this question, like, because I, when people say like, when did you know that you wanted to do comedy? It was a little bit after I had begun doing comedy, like in, in linguistics, which I studied, uh, undergrad as a minor. And then in grad school, I learned that the main thing about, uh, 
studying languages, studying the way people talk, people might have a misconception sometimes that like when I tell them I'm studying linguistics, they might be like, oh, please don't correct my grammar. And, uh, and it's not that we're like, there's a difference between being prescriptive and descriptive. And uh, like, you know, an English teacher might be prescriptively telling you, prescribing like this is how you speak, but linguists are describing the way people actually do speak. So I was like, to those people, when you say, uh, please don't correct my grammar, I'm like, oh, I have to correct you on that. We don't correct people's grammars. We do correct people's conceptions about whether linguists <laughs> correct grammar, but uh, you're not getting a bad grade for this. That's just. Um, so I, I found myself like being descriptive. I mean, it's often the way that we determine what, we, what is going to happen or what we hope will happen or what we, you know, is based on hopefully like what did happen like you know when people are like what do i do with my life like what what do well what did you what has been enjoyable what has been fulfilling what has been gratifying so far and are there ways that you can implement those elements uh into your life moving forward can you based on describing prescribe for yourself so i was like i found i loved writing songs and that's why i'm like okay i'm describing my past i love writing songs so i want to do that into the future but then i as i was doing that i found like oh i'm also loving getting laughs for the things that i'm saying that are not songs so i'm like can i you know can i water that seed and grow that uh, gardening points there yeah there you go can i can i grow that point of this garden um and so yeah so that is that is why i started doing comedy because i previously didn't know that it even was a thing that could be done like i i only knew that there were famous comedians i didn't know that there were intermediate level com i didn't know there were beginning comedians i just i thought that people just came into the world full i i truly believe that i knew that like seinfeld and like paul reiser and you know like brett butler like all the comedians with sitcoms you know i was like I truly believe that they got a TV show and then they're like, well, now I'll also do comedy, you know, like now, which is what some people do, but for the <laughs> most part, it goes the other way that you do comedy long enough. Maybe you get to do a TV show, uh, based on your comedy. Certainly that's what happened for those folks. Uh, but yeah, so for me, I was like, oh, now that I know that there are comedians, I can be, a, I, and I, I can be one and I want to be one. I love, I didn't know a lot of this about your backstory. So this is fa fascinating to hear this and actually knowing your comedy, it helps me understand some of the, like the ways you work and like how your jokes, how you compose, how, like I think about your, like your tweets from your short comedy all the way to your, like your latest album too, as having a kind of musical structure to it and the way you play with language, the way you, it's kind of things are clicking for me a little bit too of how you're, um, how you're thinking about this or like some of that early practice how that might've shaped sure. the way you're shaping your comedy. So like taking that journey with you was fascinating up into that, up into that point too. And so you, you took us to this point of the story where you found your love for comedy. You knew that this is kind of the, you love this, you love getting the jokes and the laughs more. And then was there a shift um, from there into being professional with it, of taking that next jump? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, so now, it, now let's say it's 2002 and I had, between 1999 and 2002, been, like, slowly, gradually discovering that when I would go to my music shows, I would, like, enjoy getting, like, the laughs as, like, ornamentation, you know, uh, as, like, grace notes. I'd be like, oh, like, I'm here to play music, but also, like, some of the songs are funny, and in between the songs, I'll do that. It, 2002 is when I really started actively seeking out other comedy venues to perform in, as opposed to, I would, I'd been only at the comedy studio and then a bunch of, like, music venues. 
And I found there was a place called the Emerald Isle that had a weekly open mic and uh, Dick Doherty's Beantown Comedy Vault that had uh, a Sunday night bringer show that if you brought two people, you could get on stage every week. And uh, and so I and then, you know, meeting other comedians, meeting other people who are starting out, you find out uh, where else there are shows, where else there are open mics. Like if you're in a if you're in a city that if you're in a city that hopefully has a comedy club or multiple comedy clubs, then there's probably also shows at bars and restaurants and bowling alleys and in hotel uh, lobbies or conference rooms. And, you know, like uh, like life and, and comedy finds a way variously. Like tons of Asian restaurants in, in the Boston area had, like I feel like in San Francisco, there's like a laundromat that had comedy shows. So fi- I found out where they were and I just started, I learned that, oh, in order to get good at comedy, you have to just put in the time Time, like val- put in like quantity to eventually you know sift out the quality and so I did then start from 2002 on like I was in grad school I was living at BU Boston University as a resident assistant while I was getting my master's degree and so it was helpful that I wasn't taking a lot of classes at a time and so I had enough free time to go out most nights and you know if I had shows I would go to do the shows uh I would drive you know sometimes as far as you know like an hour south to uh Providence Rhode Island to do an open mic or uh an hour out into western a couple hours into western Massachusetts or up into Maine or Vermont or New Hampshire or down to Connecticut or sometimes I'd go to New York and just like sometimes driving hours for five minutes on stage uh ideally just you know doing it around Boston whenever I could but, uh, you know, just getting, you know, getting that 10,000 hours in Malcolm Gladwell style, you know, and little by little, you know, eventually you, you hopefully get a good five minutes, then you get a good 10 minutes, then you get a good 15 minutes, then you have a, an audience that hates you. And you're like, I guess I only have a good two minutes. And then you, you know, keep, you keep going, you keep building. And then there were some like local bookers around the area that, oh, like once you have 15 minutes and if you have it on tape, you can send it to this guy and then he'll book you to be the opening act on these, you know, shows at like Elks Lodges or, you know, just different, uh, you know, areas, just different function centers and, uh, and again, bars and restaurants and clubs and such. And like Dick Doherty's Beantown Comedy Vault that I mentioned, they had a few other rooms Dick Doherty did. Uh, I started like working the door at that club for a little while. Like if you work, if you help set up and take tickets on Friday or Saturday night, you'd get a five minute guest set on the show and then you could come do the open mic for free without bringing people. And so just, you know, doing as much as I could to get on stage as many times a night, a week, uh, an eternity that I could. Uh, and then, yeah, eventually, like, you know, I, I would be, I started getting booked, you know, maybe a couple years in, got like paid 50 bucks to do 10 minutes somewhere, 75 bucks to do like six months later, a 20 minute set somewhere. And then just little by little, you know, uh, the hope was to be like working mostly on the weekends you'd get, you know, potentially you could get paid, uh, you know, 50 bucks for an opening set, maybe, you know, maybe a hundred bucks when you were like the, the middle act, uh, and, Ideally, you know, and at that point, the the path forward was, became like hazier because like there was a bunch of Boston headliners like that had been there since the 80s. And it seemed like it was difficult to like a lot of people when they when you you you'd sort of hit a ceiling to be like, well, they're still good and they're still here. So you're not going to take those spot the spots that they have from them. So a lot of people would then move to New York or move to L.A. And uh, so I from 2002 to 2008, I lived in Boston and I eventually like started, you know, I got to open uh, one of the first, like, there's a big club in town that's at, like, you know, 400, 500 people or something, the Comedy Connection. And uh, and I eventually started, like, I think I opened for Mike Birbiglia there one one day in, like, 2006, probably. 
and or one weekend and uh it was that was a, a really cool opportunity and like then he actually like took me on the road a few times uh, uh pretty pretty frequently for a little while and he was super like I actually called him once because uh, I saw that a little bit after that he was going to be at a comedy club in Hartford Connecticut only like an hour and a half from where I lived and I was like I just wanted to ask like hey like what do you think I should do if I want to try to, I want to try to perform, like who books that, you know, like kind of like the classic comedian joke. But I was like, at that time, naive. And I was like, Hey, famous comedian, like, how do I perform? How do, how do I get them to give me uh, 10 minutes on stage? And he's like, sure, you can host for me. And I was like, Oh, so he, I, he had me host there for him. And uh, he took me to a couple colleges and uh, a couple, it was really, it was really cool. And I feel like uh, a few other people did that for me also like Todd Barry uh, another comedian I love, uh, like had me open for him a bunch of places like in Savannah and Atlanta and kind of all over. And, uh, and so at that point, uh, it's now getting to be like 2008 is when I moved to New York. And so like 2006, 2007 is when I felt like that was the first time that I, I felt like I was getting better. You know, I felt, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good now. Uh, I remember Joe List, wonderful comedian friend. So funny. Uh, he's got a, a free special on YouTube that I recommend. I think it's called, I hate myself. And, uh, Joe, he and I had started out around this. He'd started maybe a little bit before me, but we were like around the same, a same class in comedy in Boston. And I remember like, uh, I think we both had the experience of when we both started, like of being like, I don't know, that guy's, uh, yeah, he's a guy's nice guy, you know? But I remember uh, eventually, like I would see, I'm like, God, Joe's like one of the funniest people I've ever seen. And I remember in 2006, he saw, we were on a show together at the comedy studio and I had a really good set. And he was like, he was like, wow, like that was great. Like in, in a way that uh, I understood meant he was surprised because he hadn't seen me be that good uh, because I hadn't been that good. He, he had had an accurate view of me previously and then didn't see me for a while. I, I had another really nice experience like that with, uh, I like have a, you know, a Google alert on my name and I saw, a, a blog post from a musician who used to see me at club Passim at that place where I would do the, the music open mic. And it was like maybe 2011 or so 2010, maybe. And I, this guy, the, the blog post was about, he's like, Hey, I just saw this guy, Mike Kaplan on TV. I did, I think in 2010 is when my half hour comedy central special came out. He's like, I just saw his comedy central special and it's great. And he's like, I want to let everyone know. He's like, I think most of the people reading this blog are like aspiring musicians, aspiring artists, aspiring performers. Uh, just here's what I want to let everyone know is that when I saw Mike Kaplan perform at this music open mic in 2002, he was bad. And like between then in the, in the past eight years, he got better. And, and it's just beautiful to know that that can happen. And the way that it happens is by, by doing it, by putting in the work, by putting in the time, by not, you know, not knowing how it's going to happen or even whether it's going to happen, but probably you're going, if you do, if you work at something, you'll probably be better at it later than you were before. Uh, not by some predictable amount, but, uh, so yeah, so 2000, Six is, I think, when I got to start opening for like some bigger comedians at uh, the big clubs in town. I did. I got my first college booking agent, which I had wanted to get because I under. I like. I was still kind of in college. I was still pretty young. I felt like a college audience was like better for me than like an audience full of drunken adults, which was you know the dichotomy it seemed. And uh, that's why the comedy studio was nice because it was right across this. It was in Cambridge. There were so many colleges. Like a lot of college kids came, and I'm like an audience full of attentive people used to raising their hand when they want to speak. That's my demographic. Uh, not people who like yell out and need to need <laughs> you to prove things to them uh, in advance. But uh, 
Yeah. So I, I got that college booking agent. I got, I, I got one and then I, I got a different one in like 2007. Cause I think the one that I had stopped being one, uh, and a, a thing that happens once in a while that's happened a couple of times actually. But, uh, I, and I went to one of the, there's a conference called NACA, which is like the national association of campus activities, which is like to, if you get to perform at one of these, you you apply and it's very competitive and I was very fortunate to get in in 2007 to one in Pennsylvania, and you perform in front of all of these uh, student and uh, and faculty representatives of different colleges, like maybe 50 to 100 schools or something might be there representing, and they see comedians and magicians and musicians and bands, you know, and uh, and dance troops and any kind of you know if if you're familiar with like the college entertainment. Uh, market or concept, like, you know, colleges bring in different entertainers uh, and this is where they find them sometimes. And so if you have a good set, then you might get, I think I got booked at, you know, some double digit number of schools that paid enough that I could be like, if this continues, then I don't need to have the job I had at the cafe that I was working at, the RA job that was, you know, that I was doing at BU, which I stopped doing in 2008 after I left the school as well and moved to New York, uh, the linguistics annotation job that I was also doing at the time. You know, I was working somewhere like 20-ish hours a week. I'd also been working at this cafe 10 to 20 hours a week at times. And uh, I'd been doing, you know, teaching music at the summer camp over the summers, which I continued doing for a little while and eventually did like stand up workshops for the kids as well. But eventually 2008 was the, the year that I moved to New York and determined that uh, I no longer needed to do anything other than comedy uh, in order to support my life as long as uh, I could keep those wheels spinning. <laughs> Thanks so much for giving the, your story here and like where, where comedy, I think it's, there's a lot of people aspiring creatives listening, um, including me of like learning new, like new, new podcasting, new fields, new music, new performance. And I think that that message of practice of putting yourself out there repeatedly for years and growing it organically the way you have with a lot of determination in your story and just passion behind, I think I would imagine it would take to, to love doing it that, that got you there. Oh yeah. And I'll also add just briefly based on what you just said, uh, a thing that was very lucky in my experience was that the the work that I had up until that point, up until I decided that I didn't need that work, was flexible enough and understanding enough. Like the 20 hours I did at the linguistics annotation company uh, was I didn't have to go in specifically like four hours a day, five hours a day. I could do, if I wanted, like 10 hours Monday, 10 hours Tuesday. Yeah, that flexibility is crucial. then travel for a week uh, or, you know, take a week off and then do double the next week sometimes, depending on what projects were going on at the time. But, like, I could go in in the middle of the night if I wanted to. Like, so it was, and and my, my bosses, my, you know, the people that I worked for were kind of understanding and, like, and so that's really, if you can, if you can have that, it's nice. And I just wanted to also plug, my friend Sarah Benincasa is a wonderful uh, writer, comedian, storyteller, uh, artist, and she wrote a, she's written a number of books. One of them is called Real Artists Have Day Jobs, and uh, I follow her on Medium now. She writes some beautiful things. I'll check that out. And yeah, Real Artists Have Day Jobs, it's a book of essays, and one of them is about, it's specifically about this topic that, like, I have a friend who we were also starting out around the same time, and the goal, our, the goal that we had was to have comedy be what we do for work, have comedy be uh, sustaining enough that, that, is, that we don't have to do things that we don't want to do. 
And I remember he used to be a lawyer. And so he eventually, he stopped being a lawyer and he's like, I'm a full-time comedian, but he wasn't getting all the work that he, he, he was like, essentially like, well, as long as I live in a small enough place and like, don't move around that much. And he's like, I'm a comedian. I'm only a comedian. And like, since then he has also, he's <laughs> like, also maybe it can be valuable to, if I take a couple of freelance, like legal gigs, like then I can live comfortably. Like now I'm like, oh, it, it doesn't matter, like, to me now, I'm like, if I have to do something that's not comedy to help keep me, me and my loved ones alive, uh, that's okay, too. Like, I'm not gonna just, uh, like, you know, uh, hold on to the, the flag, you know, the symbol of, like, but I have to, the, it was the dream. I mean, and it was the dream, and it is the dream, and to be able to continue to live as comfortably as possible and then also be able to, you know, contribute to the world, contribute to society, to help others, you know, the mu as much as I can. Uh, like, I'm not, I'm not as precious as to be like, yeah. I, this has to be the way that it is. I'm going to ideally strive to address what is happening and hopefully continue to create and keep making, you know, albums and comedy and music and writing and whatever projects I want to that uh, hopefully get uh, received into the world uh, in a way that uh, the everything keeps everything keeps flowing and spinning. I think that's right. I think there's that I think seeing, seeing it being a linear scale of amateur to professional is I think unfair to the reality of most art that's made. And so much art is great art is made by amateurs or people doing working jobs and outside of their, even if they could be an artist, but in a field that's not paying them, and they make something else. And so I think just to link work and creativity so directly is definitely not what I'm about. So I think it's important. I think that's the reality most people who are creatives are living with. Um, it's a small minority that can just do this one creative art and fully support themselves and create massive abundance. Like that is not the majority experience and and that's that's okay that's like that that's that's the world and i think too that um yeah and it's i think it's good to recognize that and work strategically within that to create the outcomes you want so that's really good too and um i know we're running a little low on time here and I'm, I'm i'm feeling inspired maybe to do a part two with you oh sure eventually because there's a lot more i want to talk about with you but um just want to see with closing um if you're open to sharing too i was going to ask you if the traditional intention of comedy is, in my understanding, is to make people laugh, to be entertained. Um, if you oh, have, yeah, that's your mistake. So, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm ready to learn. Please go on. But I'd love to hear your intentions with your comedy, too. I mean, going deeper, a few levels deeper than that of, of as, as a comedian, what you're bring, what, why you're doing it for yourself and for others, like what, it, what you're bringing to that. Sure, thank you. Uh, and I can, I can only speak for myself, truly. Um, but so when I started out, I remember my first album that I made was Vegan My Meld, and it came out in 2010. And then the most recent one that I had is called AKA, and it came out in 2020, 2020. And uh, the, I feel like over throughout the years, I've always been, like the goal has always been to be funny, to create jokes and make them as funny as possible. In the beginning, I felt like, uh, I didn't know exactly what would be funny or what could be funny. And not to say that I do automatically know that now, but I was so open to whatever it could be, any idea. I wrote it down. I recorded it. I was like, let me just get these all. And then I'll look through them and I'll try, ideally try them all. 
and see which ones get like which these are the ones I, I like them all let's see which ones audience is like and so that my first I think my first several albums would be like sort of you know a greatest hits a hodgepodge of like whatever worked best of what I wanted what I thought was funny so some of the jokes would be about some of the jokes would be about my life uh and my you know my relationships some of the jokes would be about like just absurdism or silly wordplay some of the jokes would be about pop culture things like movies I liked or movies I didn't like some some jokes would be about like social justice issues that I cared about uh you know political things societal things um and but I, I wasn't like focusing on any particular area. I was just like, let me throw this all at the wall and see which ones stick. And it was nice. You know, I, I talked. Uh, I've talked most on most of my albums, at least a little bit about veganism, which is something that is a part of my life that's important to me. Uh, and then I've, on, you know, it's almost all of them have something. Uh, some things about like the relate whatever I'm going, whatever's going on with me in my relationships. But none of it was as actively directed or focused uh, as it would become. So I think of the, the five albums that are publicly available, uh, Vegan Mind Meld, uh, Meat Robot, Small Dork and Handsome, No Kidding, and AKA, they got uh, progressively followed this path that I'd say, you know, Vegan Mind Meld was just the best jokes from 2002 to 2010. Uh, Meat Robot was the best jokes from, you know, that I didn't do on Vegan Mind Meld, plus the ones from you know, up until 2012. Um, and then, and so forth. Small, Dark, and Handsome was the first one that had like sort of a structure to it that like it ends with a time travel joke. And so I started by saying like, in conclusion, a joke about time travel, which was fun. And then throughout the course of it, there's sort of like, uh, if not thematic things, like structural elements that uh, that sort of depend on each other, the jokes had to go in a certain order or it wouldn't have made sense. Whereas, like, the first two albums, they mostly could have gone in any... It could have been, like, you can listen to the tracks probably out of order. Maybe you won't understand a callback at one point or another, but for the most part, you could just listen to these two to five minute snippets. Yeah, and, and that's they, that's yeah. not true with the latest album, I would say. That's what I was thinking of with your musical mathematical yes. mind is I got the impression of everything relating back, so many callbacks, so much intricacy and wordplay and those that related like to a wider like bigger experience you were creating yes so so small dark and handsome was the middle of those five then no kidding is the first album that i really felt like was built around a theme and the theme was not wanting children uh which is why i called it no kidding and it was because i had this relationship that i was telling you about earlier uh where my partner wanted children a certain number in a certain amount of time. And I determined that I didn't want that. And you know, that it was like a really big experience in my life and our life. And so as what, as happens as, as a comedian, as a human who thinks about things and then creates uh, jokes and art out of it, uh, I, I was like, oh, I'm, I found myself writing a lot of material about that topic. And I was like, oh, I've never really done that. Like Mike Birbiglia, who I mentioned earlier, he, his first album is just called Two Drink Mike. And it is just a, a bunch of wonderful jokes that don't connect necessarily in any way. And then after that, he started doing like one man shows, like really funny hour plus pieces, Sleepwalk With Me, uh, and I think was the first one. And then just a number, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, uh, the new one about his child I saw on Broadway. It's And a lot of them are on Netflix. And I remember people asking me like, oh, do you want to do what he does? And that's sort of what like Edinburgh comedians do or like British or Australian comedians. They're like, they do a new show each year that has a theme. And uh, and I and that's not what most standups in America are doing. Like some are, 
I saw sure. you open for Gary Goldman sort of did that with oh, depression. It was uh, a really beautiful A hundred percent. Yeah. The great depression. Uh, yeah. I think it's on HBO still yeah, and you can get the album. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a masterpiece, so a work of art. And yes. And it's all about, uh, his, his depression, his great depression. Um, yeah. So there, there are more people, I think, I mean, there's so many people doing so many different things and there's so many wonderful comedians that are simply telling an hour of wonderful jokes. And that is, that's perfect and beautiful. And I love doing that. And I love seeing that, uh, like whatever people want to do, whatever people are called to do. And then I also love when people are like, are making the choice, uh, to be like, well, I want to, from, I, people, so people used to ask me like, do you want to do what Mike Birbiglia does? And I was like, I don't think, I don't think I can. I'm, I'm not motivated to, I'm like, I just like writing these tiny jokes, these like tiny snowflakes of jokes that I pack together and eventually, you know, build up into, you know, some kind of ice sculpture perhaps, or a boulder that I roll down the hill and it gains more and more snow. And then eventually is an avalanche. And then I carve an ice sculpture out of it. And, um, <laughs> But then I found myself, I was like, oh, why don't I, like, so many of the, the things that I've done in my life uh, started from like, oh, wh why don't I try? Like, you know, I, if, if it could go the best, like, then why not try, what would be the first step of it? Like becoming a singer-songwriter or becoming vegetarian or vegan. I was like, why don't, why don't I imagine that I'm not going to fail? Why don't I imagine that, like, because definitely if I don't try, then I'm not going to accomplish it, very likely. Uh, though I have, again, stumbled into a few things accidentally, organically. But then I, I did put effort into the things. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is working. Let me keep working. Let me keep pushing this forward and roll with this current. And so with no kidding, I was like, yeah, let me see if I can create a whole a whole show that builds off of the this one central idea of not wanting children. And I, I mean, and the album does have like jokes about different topics, but it all did grow out of that. And then AKA, which when I was touring with it, I called it All Killing Aside. <laughs> Uh, that actually was born out of the same motivation to do one, uh, one full hour of comedy that was all about, you know, one concept, mainly the concept, I say that it's about, you know, love, kindness, and not murdering. And, and so there are jokes in it about veganism. There are jokes in it about, you know, love and relationships. There are jokes about like, you know, uh, loving art, loving, I mean, some of, even, many of the same things that I talked about, like movies that I love and, uh, and like where I came from and my, you know, my, my life, my family, my relationship, my, my work, uh, some silly things, some absurd things, but I, I, I figured out a way to do it. Uh, I was like, what if I can have it be one cohesive piece that is both thematically connected and also structurally connected. And so, and, and then I, I found that I found so many, so many things that beautifully connected. And I was like, I'm just going to keep trying to do this. And our, our friend, you know, Zach Sherwin, uh, he's, he's my, my good, good friend. One of my best. Not sure if I know him personally, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, you know, know you know of, of yeah. yeah. So Zach, Zach in the past couple of years has started working on a thing called the crossword show. And it's, uh, if you're, if you're ever able to see that the crossword show is, a, ma a masterpiece, magnificent, a symphony of, uh, of crosswords, of comedy, of music, hip hop, uh, of trivia and facts and learning. And Zach works on these like eight hours a day for months and months and months. He's made like five different ones. And when you, when you look for something long enough, you'll, when you look for something, you'll find something. It doesn't, it's not to say you'll find exactly, if you know exactly what you're looking for, you might not find a specific thing. But if you're like, I'm going to look for 
connections. I'm going to look for, and again, like we were talking earlier with the more data points you have, the more connections you're going to be able to make. If you only have two data points, you'll only be able to make one connection between those two things. But if you have, you know, five, you can make a star. If you have a billion, imagine how many things you can make. And so if you look for things long enough, and so that's what I started doing, like looking within like all the jokes that I was working on. And I know maybe we'll talk about this more in our next conversation, but there was an ayahuasca ceremony that I did in probably 2014 or so that uh, maybe 2015, somewhere in that time period, uh, where 20, I think 2016 is when I recorded No Kidding and then started, I think the next day, the day after I recorded No Kidding, I did like a 40 minute set that was like the the initial like jelly-like shape that would become AKA. And I was like, oh yeah, this is like, this is, this is something special. This is something big and important uh, with, you know, it's sort of relatively speaking in the work that I'm doing. I'm like, this is different than what I was doing before. And uh, I remember, and I just wanted to make a comedy show, a special, an hour, a thing based on, you know, essentially about, love and forgiveness and, you know, togetherness and connection. And so now the way that I sort of describe the difference between my earlier work and this album in particular, and what I'm trying to do now is that in the beginning, I was like, I was writing jokes that I cared about and about anything. And now I'm telling jokes that I care about, about things that I care about. Like it used to be that I would, you know, accidentally stumble upon like, oh, I wrote a funny joke about gay marriage. I wrote a, a fun joke about racism, about sexism, you know? And I'm like, I'm glad to be telling these jokes about these things that I think are important to talk about. But I don't know if I can like, at the time I was like, oh, there's comedians like Hari Kondabolu or uh, W. Kamau Bell or Maria Bamford, like who are making their, their living out of like mining these rich, important sources. And I was like, I don't know how they do that. I don't know. And now I'm not saying I know how they do what they do exactly. Like everyone's doing their own unique, beautiful thing, but I'm like, oh, now I'm, I'm discovering that the way to do the unique, beautiful thing that I can do is to start trying is to be like, what if I want to do this? How, how does it, how would I imagine the first step to be? And then how do I put these things together? Um, and so to answer your question of like what, I mean, I always want, what I want to do with my comedy is make people laugh and then all, and share truths about my experience, share the things that I love and that are important to me and that are meaningful to me and that I are hopefully important to the world. Uh, that, you know, can, if, if they can help, you know, like there are people who've listened to my comedy and been like, I became vegan because I, I listened to what you said and it made a lot of sense. Or like, I've talked about open relationships and polyamory, which I'm in a monogamous relationship now and I'm very happy and I, I love it. And I also love, uh, the path that I've taken and that there are people who've listened to me like, oh, and this was really meaningful for me in opening up communication in my relationship. And so, these are, again, like beautiful descriptions that I'm not, I haven't been prescribing. I'm not like, I want my comedy to definitively bring out this kind of change. But uh, I, like, I like the idea that I think my comedy now is more helpful, potentially, it can be, than it, than it was in specific ways. And maybe that's not even true because there are people who, fans of mine who've written me letters saying like, you know, I listened to your first album, you know, the one that I'm like, oh, whoever, it's all over the place. Like, they're like, and I listened to it. I was, I was like driving across the country, you know, uh, because of, you know, the loss of a loved one. And it really mm. comforted me in that time, which I'm like, oh, I, I certainly didn't, 
I, I didn't actively go into comedy so to help people in their morning, but I'm like, oh, now that that's a, I, I'm so grateful that that person had that experience with my comedy. Uh, and so, but the things that I'm aiming for, here's just one, one sort of final-ish quick joke about it is like, I've also in the past several years started outside of my comedy, like, you know, pursuing more uh, engagement with activism and volunteering and, uh, and you know, focusing my, my time, my attention, my, do- my dollars on things that I can hopefully help outside of myself, uh, you know, in our, in our community, in our country, in our world. And, uh, and I, I, there's always more that I can do. And so I'm like, oh, I, you know, it used to be that I do an hour of comedy and it wouldn't be like motivated by helping. And now I'm like, oh, like so, at least part of the motivation is I'm like, if I'm writing a comedy hour about about kindness and about things that I care about, maybe that'll also be helping. And I'm like, maybe my next hour will I won't even be doing comedy. I'll just be out there helping, you know. So I, but again, it's sort of like the the spectrum uh, of one end to the other, where it it doesn't have to be a choice between you know. Uh, are you doing this or are you doing this? Hopefully it can be all of this at once. Yes. Yes. And all of it. I think that's, I like that holistic approach to it, that how sharing yourself and what you're passionate about, what you're curious about, what you're maybe critical of in a funny way um, can open that like different ways of thinking up for other people and feeling or shift how people are feeling. It seems like there's a lot of richness there, a lot of possibility that performance and comedy can bring and the examples you share it to people and let's bookend that or we'll come back. We'll bookmark that uh, ayahuasca experience. Cause on the podcast, I am really curious about hearing about my friends and my guests, spiritual awakenings and practices specifically around plant medicine. So I'd love to come back and talk to you on that shifting moment uh, in part two totally. of our next conversation. But it's been really a pleasure talking to you today. Like I, I just loved, you've been a friend for the last few years and just getting to know your background more creatively and your history was, was really enjoyable for me and getting into your head more. So thanks for opening up that way. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it, I felt very welcome and uh, you're a wonderful host and I'm happy to continue to get to know you, know you, my friend. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. That was my podcast with Mike Kaplan. Let me know what you thought of that. You can email me at fourgardens at podcast at gmail.com. Um, let me know what, it, what you think. Um, check out Mike's links that I shared below. All of them will be there. I'll make sure to get it from him. Um, uh, everything you need to know online. Um, and once again, just thanks for taking the time for listening today. And to everyone out there, keep on growing.